Morning. If you got a Bible, open up to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. As you're turning there, you, uh, you may have uh, heard on the news uh, the other day that uh, there was a very uh, notable death in the Christian community uh, on Friday morning, as a matter of fact. It was announced on Saturday. And that was uh, Matthew Warren, the son of Pastor Rick Warren at Saddleback Church in Lake Forest. And uh, just, we just wanted to draw attention to that today as a church family uh, and encourage all of us to be in prayer for uh, Pastor Rick and Kay Warren. Uh, some of their children, I don't know if Matthew attended here, someone could perhaps answer that for me, maybe Amy, but uh, I know that some of Rick and Kay's children attended Stony Brook Christian School. And I'm not sure if Matthew did or not. Uh, apparently he uh, suffered for, for many, many years with uh, bouts with mental illness, with depression, with suicidal thoughts. And uh, it just it goes to show that... Uh, that that is a very real and a very uh, dark experience that, that many, many people battle. And I have no doubt some of you um, battle with moments of depression or perhaps ongoing depression at times. Uh, it's a real struggle for many, and even Christians um, can fall prey to it and can succumb to it all the way to the point of, of taking their own life. Um, but we give thanks because we're, we understand that Matthew knew Jesus Christ as his Savior, and he is with him right now based on that testimony. Amen? So let's, uh, let's stand as we uh, hold our spot in Colossians. Let's stand up together and let's pray for uh, Pastor Rick and their family and their church at this time. Our Heavenly Father, oh Lord, uh, we were reminded even just this last week that uh, sometimes the grave is cruel. And Father, uh, to see life taken in this manner just reminds us, Lord, that, uh, that life can be very hard. There, there, there can be a lot of struggles out there, God, some that we're never even aware of. We sit by uh, friends here in the pews, um, and we, we walk day to day with friends and coworkers and neighbors, Lord, but sometimes we just don't know the extent to which someone is suffering. And that was surely the case with Matthew Warren. And so God, we pray your blessings upon all those who are now mourning his death. We thank you, God, that uh, based on his testimony of faith, that he is with you and that he is whole and healed completely forever now. But there's going to be a lot of pain in the meantime, God, for Pastor Rick, for his wife, and for their church. And so we just pray uh, a special uh, prayer of blessing upon them for comfort, for a healing touch from you. And we pray too that the Christian community and even those outside the church um, would rally around in this moment um, to, uh, to give comfort and condolence to the family. And too, Lord, that this would uh, raise perhaps the profile of what it looks like to be depressed to deal with mental illness. These are things that are, that are real struggles for all sorts of people. God, help us by your spirit to walk through those moments of darkness and to see you bring new life out of difficult times. And now, Lord, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would bless our time together, continue to open our eyes to your truth, help us to see 
your word plainly and clearly and to conform our lives to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you remain standing as we read from Colossians chapter 4? Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2 to verse 6. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Paul writes, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open a door, open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You may be seated. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and all the way to here where we are in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, is a portion of Paul's letter to the Christians in Colossae that can be summed up in four words. Off, on, under, and up. Part one we looked at about a month ago. Put off the old man. Part two, put on the new man. Part three we looked at just a couple weeks back, come under proper authority. We looked a lot at at the uh, biblical concept of submission there. And here we are, part four, finishing up this portion of of the letter to Colossae. It is entitled, Wise Up and Lift Up Prayer. Today we look up as Paul encourages us to lift up our prayers to God and to wise up in how we speak and act in this world. And so he writes in verse 2, he says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Three points on your outline. If you've got an outline, grab a pen. Uh, three points on your outline today about prayer, uh, the kind of looking up that Paul wants us to have. The first point about prayer is that we're to continue earnestly in it. Write down the word earnestly. We're to continue earnestly in prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul says. Let it be a habit. Persevere in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Pray without ceasing. Now the objections to to prayer are many, especially in our day and age. Uh, One of the the chief objections to to a life of prayer or to ongoing prayer in our day-to-day life is you say, well, you know, I'm just so busy. I don't have time to pray. You know, even the busiest people I know have moments in their day where they can get away for some quietness. Think about while you're driving to work or to school. Some of you have commutes, whether you you drive to work, whether you take the kids to school, whether you're going to the grocery store. And our tendency in those moments is to flip the radio on or to turn on some music. But what if we turned it off? What if we made it a habit to turn off all noise as we were going to work or to school And we were to use those 10 or 20 or 30 minutes to pray, 
just to talk to God, just to speak to Him? What about while exercising? What about in the morning before anyone else is awake? There's always moments in the day where you can find a time to pray. And the point here is, is to find a habit. It's different for everyone. I think, quite frankly, driving is one of, one of the easiest methods for me to, to be in a time of prayer. It's when I'm driving somewhere. Turn off that radio and pray. Another objection is, I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to say. You know, I, 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 I turn off the radio as I'm driving and I just kind of sit there and I look up at the Lord and I, I don't know what to tell him. Well, that's okay too. Because Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit of God prays with you and for you in the moments where you don't know what to say. And so it is better that you just sit quiet for 20 minutes on your drive and just listen to see if the Lord is speaking to your heart. Prayer is not just about you and I speaking to God. Prayer is a state of listening to what God is saying to us. Number one, continue earnestly in prayer. Would you make a point this week in particular to start a new habit in prayer? Number two, Paul says be vigilant in prayer. Vigilant. The word vigilant there in English is the Greek word gregoreo. It means be awake in prayer. Be alert in prayer. Be watchful in prayer. Theologian James Dunn rightly points out that this Greek word, gregoreo, draws imagery from the idea of being a guard, a guard on duty. He, he draws parallels from uh, the book of Nehemiah, chapter 7, in which guards are placed to guard the holy city. And they're to stand duty. They're to be alert. They're to be ready. You're on guard when you're praying. You're watchful when you're praying because you're alert to the things of God. And Paul urges us to be vigilant, awake, alert, watchful. One of the things that I think is most lacking in... uh, especially among modern Christians, uh, modern day Christians, in their, with respect to their prayer life, is not just the fact that they're, uh, they haven't made it a habit to pray throughout the day, but that they lack concentration in prayer. That we lack concentration in prayer. It's interesting, Jesus said repeatedly, He said, go off and find a quiet place. Matthew 6, 6, he says, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you've shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, 23, it says that Jesus went off by himself to a quiet place to pray. And in Acts 10, Peter actually goes up on the rooftop in Acts 10, verse 9. But he wasn't going up on the rooftop, you know, to, to, to see what was going on in the city. He, he went up on the rooftop because that was one of the quietest places in all the house. In, in the first century, to go on the rooftop meant you were getting a moment of quiet. The point is, is that we need to find a, a place and a time where we can concentrate time in prayer. We need vigilant, alert concentration. 
not just when we're involved in individual prayer, but also when we're involved in corporate prayer. When someone prays from the worship team, when, when Dustin prays for the needs of the church, when I pray before or after a message or at the end of a service, the, these are not just moments to check out as a church body. These are not just moments to say, well, that person's praying over there and I'm just, I'm just sitting here and I've got nothing to do. Quite the contrary, when someone else is praying, especially on behalf of the whole church or on behalf of a, of a corporate body, all of you who listen to that prayer ought to be praying with them. As we close our eyes and bow our heads, our hearts and minds should be knit together as we pray, nodding our heads quietly at the things spoken that we too wish to intercede for, saying a quiet, yes, Lord, whenever a particular prayer or intercession strikes a chord in our hearts. Uh, J.P. Moreland spoke uh, a little bit about this in his book, uh, The Kingdom Triangle. He talked about how we are to engage in corporate prayer. We're not just bumps on a log when someone else is praying. That is a time for you to spiritually concentrate on the content of the supplication that is being said, to agree with it, to speak quietly to your heart, yes, Lord, yes, I want that too, God, amen. We don't watch people pray. We pray with them. We assent to their prayers. We participate in their prayers, even though we ourselves may not be leading the prayer. The next time you watch someone pray, don't sit there inattentively. Pray with them. Concentrate on their intercession. Pray alongside them. The third aspect of, a third principle of prayer that Paul brings out is to pray with thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, in everything, Paul says, pray without ceasing, and then he says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Prayer is not merely a time to ask God for the things that we need, but to thank him for what he's already done. Prayer is a time to be reminded that without him, we can do nothing, and so we give him thanks. Verse 2 of Colossians 4 offers us good wisdom on how to pray. And now Paul goes on to speak definitively about a specific prayer request that he has for the church. Take a look at verses 3 and 4. This is a specific prayer that he asked the church in Colossae to pray for him. He says, Meanwhile, praying also for us, that God would open a door, open to us a door, for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Pray for us, Paul asks. Paul asks for prayer. Uh, I've said it before that um, earlier on in my Christian life and still to, to this day, but earlier on in my Christian life I was reticent to ask for prayer because I would always think, well, there's, surely there's, there's more important requests than this. I, w- I would be slow to ask for prayer from others because I would think, you know, what I'm going through is, is not as significant as perhaps someone else. 
But you know, more, the older I get, the more apt I am to ask for prayer in all things. Paul asks for prayer. And it's a model for us that we need to ask for prayer. Some of us, you know, we, we, we see the this, this slip on the bulletin that says, uh, how can we pray for you? And we just kind of gloss over it. We flip by it every single Sunday when we read the bulletin. Or maybe we don't read the bulletin. One of the two. Um, put down a prayer request. The elders review those requests. The staff review those requests. We pray for you on a regular basis. We make mention of those requests in the back of the bulletin where appropriate. If it's a private request, you can indicate that too. Ask for prayer. Prayer is not a selfish act. Asking for it is not a selfish act. A request for prayer is an act of dependence upon God. James 4.2 says you don't have because you don't ask. What was Paul asking for? <clears throat> Take a look at verse 3. He says, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Paul says that God would open to us a door, that God would give us a- an opportunity Paul asks. An opportunity for what? Well, Paul mentions that he's in chains in verse 3. He, he mentions there that for which I am also in chains. And interestingly enough, this is actually the first time he's mentioned it in all the epistle. We, we've talked about the fact that Paul was imprisoned this whole time throughout our series in Colossians. But this is actually the first place where he actually mentions it. Is he asking for opportunity to be released from prison, from, from his home arrest in Rome? No. What is he asking opportunity for? Paul does not seek opportunity for himself. He seeks prayer for the opportunity that the word of God might go out to those who need it. He seeks prayer for the opportunity of the evangelization of others. Notice carefully, Paul was not asking for his personal needs, though he was on house arrest but that there might be an open door for the word, the message of the gospel. Tom Constable writes on the back of your outline there that Paul had greater concern about getting the gospel out than he had with getting himself out of prison. Lord, let your word go out, was Paul's prayer. He wanted the person of Jesus to be exalted. He wanted those who did not know the gospel to hear it and to believe it and to receive Christ in them, the hope of glory. Paul might have been chained, but he knew that while his chains were a tragedy, that there was one thing that could not be chained, and that was the word of God. And so he wrote elsewhere in 2 Timothy 2, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. That was Paul's prayer. That he would suffer loss for the sake of the gospel ministry. Doug Moo writes, uh, Paul, that Paul mentions his imprisonment, quote, to illustrate the power of God in opening doors for the gospel even when humans conspire to close them. What an example in, in suffering uh, that, that Paul showed us that even in his suffering, his 
ultimate concern was that the gospel go out. Was that even, even by his chains, that the gospel could be made manifest to others. That they could see it, even while he was physically imprisoned. The word of God is not chained. In, I think of China today. Uh, did you know that China, communist China, communist China is now the number one global producer of Bibles? Amity Printing began in 1988 as a joint effort between the United Bible Societies and the Chinese uh, Christian Council. In their first year, 1988, they printed over 500,000 Bibles. Just last year, in 2012, Amity Printing printed 12 million Bibles. Altogether, in the past 25 years, this organization has produced 100 million Bibles in more than 90 languages. Two-thirds of those 100 million have been exported around the world, but one-third have remained in China in the last 25 years. Over one million Bibles produced uh, annually over the last 25 years that have remained in country. It's not enough. It's not enough for those Christians in the underground church in China. All 67 estimated million of them, by the way. 67 estimated, uh, 67 million estimated Christians in China. All of this done in communist China. The word of God is not chained. Amen? It's not chained. It's printed in atheistic and communistic societies. But here Paul, he's more concerned about that word going out than his own chains. He's more concerned about the salvation of others than his own physical needs. And so too, we also ought to be concerned with how the world, how we present Christ to the world. And so we finish with verses 5 and 6. Paul writes in chapter 4, he writes, So walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech... Always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Walk in wisdom. As we are vigilant and concentrating in prayer, as we are thinking not only about our own travails, but that the word of God might might be used through our hardships, Paul says we're to think wisely and walk wisely as we speak and act in this world. We're to redeem the time. That means to buy it back. Redemption, redeem, in first century context, as it has over, over the centuries, always had the, the mindset of buying out of slavery, buying back out of captivity, taking what was once enslaved and setting it free. And so also, Paul says, we need to buy back this short earthly time from its captivity to sin and Satan. We need to take advantage of all the time that is available to us and make the most of every opportunity. The time is short. The grave is imminent. And I want to leave this life with no regrets. I don't want to let another family member or friend or neighbor carry on without knowing the eternal importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we must speak to them. 
We must tell them. And Paul gives us advice on how to speak. Verse 6, he says, Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. The word speech there is the Greek word logos. It's the same Greek word used uh, to describe the word, the scriptures. And so logos in the New Testament can describe the word of God, the revelation from God to us, logos, the word. But logos can also mean our own revelation from our lips, what we speak out, our conversation. Interesting parallel, don't you think? Paul says the logos should be filled with grace, charis, charite. The logos of our lips should be just like the logos of the word, should be filled with grace. As God's word is filled with the gospel of grace, so let our words mimic and imitate the tone and the content of the scripture. Many Christians fail, many Christians fail when it comes to using the right tone. A wife once said to her husband, you can be right but wrong at the top of your voice. Tone matters. Content, content is important. We all agree with that. The content of what I say is important. The content that we teach from the pulpit at Coast is important. We care about the truth, the content of the word. But what we often forget about is the tone with which that content is communicated. Tone matters. So speak graciously with love. Be pleasant in your tone, not harsh or rude, sarcastic or condescending. Your tone matters. Let your speech, Paul says, always be with grace. Let your words be seasoned with salt Drawing on how how Jesus used the the imagery of salt in the New Testament, he means to say that, that let your speech, your words, be seasoned with attractive and flavorful tone and content. Let it be seasoned with that which is wholesome, that which will preserve relationships, preserve your interaction with neighbors and friends and family members, that will build it up and not tear it down. Let your words have an attractive, flavorful, wholesome, preserving quality to them. Speak to others with the tender mercies that you were told to put on in Colossians 3. And as you put on these gracious and wholesome words and tone, Paul says that it will aid you, it will help you in knowing how you are to answer each one. Did you catch that? Think through that just one more time. Let me read it from from verse verse 6. He says, let your speech, let your logos, always be with grace. Let it be seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. He's giving a a result. He's saying if you do A and B here, then then C is going to apply. C is going to obtain. If you have gracious words, if you have words that are seasoned with salt, they're wholesome, 
They have a preserving quality to them. He says, you're going to know how to answer people. You're going to know how to represent God well. Paul's saying that the gracious, wholesome tone of your words will help you in answering others who inquire about the Christian faith. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, in 1 Peter 3.15, we're told that we're uh, we're instructed to defend the faith. Defend the faith. Peter writes, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. A defense, an apologetic. We're to argue in a, in a sense, but in, in a good way, Peter says, be ready to contend for the faith. Be ready to give an answer when someone objects to the resurrection. Be sure to give an answer when someone objects uh, to the idea of creation. Give an answer, Peter says. Be ready with an apologetic. And surely, surely, learning apologetics, learning how to defend the Christian faith is a worthy biblical goal. It's a great thing to learn apologetics. But that's not what Paul's saying here in Colossians 4, verse 6. What is he saying? Listen how he defends the faith in Colossians 4, 6. He tells us, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. In Colossians 4, 6 on your outline here, In Colossians 4, 6, Paul says that your gracious and wholesome tone, tone, in and of itself, will serve as an answer to others who are curious about Christianity. I'll say that again. In Colossians 4, 6, Paul says that your gracious and wholesome tone, in and of itself, will serve as an answer to others who are curious about Christianity. You say, I don't know if I believe that. I like the apologetics route. I want to argue with them. I want to give them uh, 50 proofs and and argue them into the faith. Really? How's that working? Raise your hand if you were argued into the faith. Raise your hand if someone argued with you and contended with you. We have one. Good. There are some. I'm not going to lie. There are some. Raise your hand if you came to faith in Christ because of the love of another who communicated to you the gospel. There's a lot more hands. Because of the tone of your mom or of your dad or of your Sunday school teacher or of a teacher or professor or just a a, a wonderful Christian man or woman who came alongside you and just showed you love and showed you the love of Christ. And you looked at them and you thought, you know, I really want what they have. There's a time to do apologetics. I like apologetics. I think it has its place in society. And I admire Christians who stand on a stage and argue with atheists or secularists, or humanists about why Christianity is true. And we need those Christians to defend the faith from an apologetic standpoint. But I have found that very few Christians are argued into the faith. Instead, they're loved into the faith. A few stats 
It has been said by sociologists that 90%, 90% of the friction in daily life in relationships, friction in relationships, 90% is caused by the wrong tone of voice. 90% of relational friction starts with the wrong tone of voice. Sociologists also estimate that only 7%, get this, I hope you can really, uh, really listen to this because according to this stat, you're not listening to 93% of the rest. (laughs) Sociologists estimate that only 7% of what I say right now comes through into your ears and settles in your heart. Did you know that actually 38% of a speaker's tone of voice is actually what matters in communicating content? And did you know that 55% of a speaker's nonverbal cues also communicates content? Much more than words do. 7% of words. 38% of the tone of the voice matters. And an astounding 55% of their nonverbals matter. It's interesting because I know that to be true of me in in many respects um, because of the preachers that I'll listen to. I have a few uh, favorites that I'll listen to during the week. I'll listen to a sermon uh, of of another preacher of different churches. And I'm always, as I look over those that I've listened to and those that I've stopped listening to, usually some of the reasons I've stopped listening to them, to, to some, is not so much because of the content of their teaching. But it's the tone of their teaching. It's the fact that they're sometimes yelling and, uh, and becoming harsh from the pulpit. There's a time for righteous indignation. And I, I, there is a time for that. But when all a preacher does or all a speaker does or all a teacher does is speak with antagonism and with vitriol and, and talks down The audience stops listening. In other words, by your tone, friends, you will either attract others to the faith or you will repel them from the faith. By your tone, you will either bring peace and harmony into your marriage or you will bring distance between you and your spouse. By your tone, your grandchildren and children will know that you unconditionally love them or they will wonder if they are loved at all. Our tone matters. Content is important. But without love, we are nothing but a clanging symbol. And what a simple way it is to be a good witness. Speak graciously. How easy is that? You may not know apologetics. You may not be able to give me 10, 20, 30 proofs for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's okay. Because if you speak graciously, if you're logos is like this Logos, then chances are you're going to be a better witness than someone who stands up and argues and argues and contends. Speak with a gracious tone. May we wise up in how we live. May we dependently lift up prayer to the Father in all things. This is how we ought to live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you, God, that, uh, that there is a very simple way to be a good witness to others and it is to speak with grace 
to be a gracious person in our speech and in our actions, to have flavorful and attractive and wholesome, preserving words, God. We can all do that. We can all do that, Lord. And it is the stats, God, we, we, we face them openly and honestly. We see clearly that, that people come to faith in Christ more often than not because they're loved, not because they're argued into it. Because someone showed them love and care, not because someone gave them ten proofs. So Lord, that's, that's eye-opening for us. And we're asking your Holy Spirit now to tune our attention to being a gracious person, to speaking graciously and acting graciously. That we might lift up prayer too, Lord. Lift up our prayers to you habitually in perseverance, God. We don't want to be a people that's not depending upon you. We want to be a people that's communicating with you. That the logos of our lips would be lifted up to you daily, and listening to you often. And that also the logos of our lips would be speaking words of grace and love to those around us. That we might win them to the faith by the love that we show them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.